Hello and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. And it is a cool, calm, snowy day outside today in Hogtown. And we are joined once again, wondrously, by Emma McIntosh. Thank you for being on again. Thanks for having me. Stefan Hostetter has uh, had other obligations again this week, unfortunately. Also, Lauren Latour is out. But hopefully she'll be back next week for our 700th episode, which is uh, obviously going to be as glorious as that number sounds. And uh, we're going to begin today with the uh, ongoing nationwide blockades in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en, then discuss the uh, tech resources' own cancellation of its uh, massive tar sands mine that was planned. Then uh, Emma McIntosh will help us discuss uh, the orphan wells problem in Alberta. And the Kenny uh, war room against environmentalists is running into some uh, social media quibbles again. And the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline uh, construction costs are going up, which uh, will put it in a dubious position going forward. And Saren is going to call Matthew Klippenstein in the last segment. Uh, yeah, I just really quickly, I was wondering if we could rename that to the War Room for Ensuring Human Destruction. Okay, we can we can we can we can send them a memo. It's just a suggestion. Yeah. All right. Well, they might bite. They might need a new logo for that, which has been a problem for them. <laughs> yes, they death stole metal. Their original just logo. googled the word death metal and set it to images. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you, you, we got some going on. We'll hire some graphic designers. So uh, let's just uh, move into the stuff here. So. I think it's fair to say that uh, Justin Trudeau is now tasting the fruit of his misinformed, half-hearted, and rhetoric-heavy reconciliation project, precipitated by his either not caring or not understanding that this country was built on lies and theft. He has consistently insisted that we simply haven't lived up to the benevolent intent of our original treaties, as if immediately going back on our word didn't prove that our word wasn't sincere to begin with. This ignorance has led him to grossly underestimate the nationwide indigenous resentment, resistance, and solidarity that is now blowing up across the country and has clogged the veins of the Canadian economy. The situation could have been eased significantly, at least in terms of its immediate economic impact, if Trudeau and the Canadian state had been willing to show some basic humility and give in to the negotiating demands of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, who have now come to now who have now come to symbolize the grotesque plight that our governments, industry, and law enforcement have subjected this land's indigenous peoples to ever since we got here. The rail lines that are being blockaded across Canada are themselves the tools that in the 19th century greatly helped our forces expand their reach into indigenous land, after which we intentionally wiped out buffalo herds, thereby making certain native communities reliant on handouts from the Mounties and forcing them into treaties that would legitimize or legalize, in the eyes of the Queen, our continued genocidal occupation of indigenous territory. These are the treaties whose spirit Justin Trudeau is always praising, and which we probably didn't even make in good faith. So as we continually unilaterally unilaterally make use of indigenous land, even for such pointless purposes as building bigger golf courses, as in the Oka crisis of 1990, and in the current case, to build a liquid natural gas pipeline on land that was never actually ceded in any treaty, dragging people off their own territory in the process, it should come as no surprise that indigenous communities from BC to Nova Scotia would block the very rails that were the instrument of our first great land theft and remain the main instrument of our economic engine. 
And it should also come as no surprise that as scientists the world over have been warning us for decades about the threat of fossil fuels to the integrity of the global ecosystem, that the constant arm-twisting by the state to impose fossil fuel projects on unwilling indigenous nations should intertwine with the growing worldwide environmental justice movement. And it makes no sense for anyone in this country, in any credible media outlet, to be arguing that environmentalists are taking advantage of this situation for the furtherance of their own agenda, especially when these rail blockades and occupations would be over in a matter of days if the RCMP simply left Wet'suwet'en territory and Coastal GasLink removed its workers so that Trudeau could enter into a real nation-to-nation -nation discussion with Wet'suwet'en leaders in the very spirit that he promised he would when he was throwing the term nation-to-nation -nation relationship around so thoughtlessly during his first election bid in 2015. Now, in the past few days, it has begun to seem like there might be a chance this could actually begin to happen, since the RCMP have agreed again to leave Wet'suwet'en land, although they have said it will take them 16 days, and coastal gas link workers have agreed to briefly cease work, since after waffling for a little while, the federal government, although not Trudeau himself, agreed to talk with Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and matriarchs yesterday in Smithers, B.C., the talks could easily last for several days before any protests stop voluntarily, and the government will have to be willing to consider its relationship with indigenous peoples as a whole for the talks to be successful, since as Chief Namux stated to the CBC, quote, there has to be some positive progressive change, and we're talking about the relationship between all indigenous people and Canada and British Columbia and each of the provinces themselves. So, Emma McIntosh, you've talked, you've written uh, several articles about this over the past few weeks. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the, your optimism regarding these talks or where they might potentially go. I think it's going to be really, really hard. Um, I wrote a piece that, that went out last night about how what's happening here is, is not like a moment. It's actually like something that has been brewing for a long time. You got it. Oka a little bit. Um, people have been talking about I don't know more, mm. and all the like the the movements and incidents that have led up to this, and like historians are getting pretty tired of saying the same thing, which <laughs> is that like this is happening over and over. Um, it's happening in the public eye every five years or so, and it's happening behind closed doors as Indigenous people everywhere are negotiating, um, be it through the courts or elsewhere, all the time, and we're not thinking about it. Um, something different has to happen here. Like, it's good that both sides are sitting down, but long term, I don't know how they're going to resolve this. Like, the, the main ask of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs is just to get coastal gas link off their land permanently. Mm -hmm. That is the one thing that the governments have said they're unwilling to do. Um, the governments want the hereditary chiefs to tell their friends to take down their blockades the chiefs aren't going to do that. That They've said it's not their place and they're not interested in doing that. So something's got to give. Um, and I would be very surprised if either side does. Mm. Just really quickly, one of the things that's really clear, as anyone who's a longtime listener of the show knows, I'm a student of analyzing word choice and intent and hidden meaning and political speak and all that sort of thing. The attitude and the framing of all of the conversations from the mainstream media and from the government and even from the right wingers that are like, you know, saying this isn't far enough and all that stuff is, is one of negotiation. When, what I mean by that is we've already agreed that you're going to sell me the couch. We're just haggling over a price, right? As opposed to 
I haven't agreed that I want your couch. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. And that is categorically different. And if you if you view the news and if you read even the mainstream media news about Justin Trudeau through that lens, you see where the problem is. Is because they will not take no for an answer. This is a from their point of view, from their perspective, and from their negotiating position. This is a foregone conclusion. This will happen. It's just a matter of how much damage. What do we have to pay for the couch? They're haggling over a price. It's absolutely clear that what their intention is from their actions, regardless of the words. Mm-hmm. I think it would be safe to say that you're right about that. Um, we, we saw like the, the latest iteration of it on Friday. Um, so a lot of people haven't really been talking about this, but Coastal Gaslink doesn't actually have all the permits it needs to go ahead. Um, it's still waiting on one last green light from BC's Environmental Assessment Office, showing that they have like properly looked at the environmental impact and the, the impact to like people in the area. Um, and the report that Coastal Gaslink submitted to achieve that purpose didn't mention Unistaten or any of the like the people settling that area right now. So, um, and, like who are living on their traditional territory. Mm. Obviously, that wasn't going to work. And on Friday the government rejected that report and sent them back to do more consultation. Um, but it isn't framed as like, you haven't met the conditions and you're not gonna be able to do this. It's just keep trying and we'll hold your hand through it until you're able to meet like the hoops that we're gonna make you jump through. Mm. It's a foregone conclusion, it will happen. They just need another month to figure it out, or another two months, however long. The interaction reminds I many years ago I worked briefly two and a half years as a furniture salesperson and in that time we the store I worked in I, pro, I trust me this is relevant the store I worked in the owner was very strict prices were prices right the price on the sticker is the price no discounts that's the price um, often and the culture specifically is irrelevant but different cultures have different um, associations with the concept of haggling right and so often some people would come in who would probably you know we're used to a different way of doing things, let me put it that way, uh, who would assume that when I, when you wouldn't negotiate that you were just being even harder a bargainer. And the effect of this and the reason that it's relevant is that if you continuously do that, they don't accept, it's not part of their mindset that you would not, that the price is actually firm. They know, and in fact, they're right, that in reality, if they push hard enough, eventually they probably could get something, right? So they know that that's not true, that, that in reality, that price is firm. And so when you rebuff them and say, no, the price is firm, or in this case, no, I don't want your pipeline, the response, and this was my response in these actions as well, is anger. They're angry at you for not playing by the rules because that's how they see it. So when I see the reaction of the government, when I see the reaction of right-wingers, and when I see the reaction of uninformed Canadians, and I see anger, that's what leads to this. Because for them, it's just like, oh, come on. Like, you don't actually get to do that. This is just a negotiating position you're claiming because we all know that at the end of the day, we're going to do here, and you're just driving you're, you're driving an unfair bargain. Come on now, come to the table. As opposed to, you don't actually have a right to do this. That's the lens through which I'm viewing this. And I think um, the current situation is showing us how Canadians increasingly don't find that acceptable um, and how futile it is to try to stop that once it's underway. Like, can you imagine the, just the absolute futility of trying to guard every single rail line, highway, and port in the country? That's never going to work. And we're seeing it everywhere. They take down a blockade, boom, there's another one. Uh, A couple maniacs spouting anti-immigrant nonsense in Alberta take down a blockade, and boom, there's another one somewhere else. Like, 
this isn't going away and I don't see anyone's energy towards it going away. Yeah, this is why it's important to look at it as the uh, hereditary chiefs have now framed it as a discussion about Canada's relationship in general with indigenous uh, communities across the country and the paternalistic attitude with which we've prolonged this crisis from the beginning. It's profoundly dishonest to even claim otherwise, frankly. Mm -hmm. So um, now I'll, I suppose I'll do a quick review of what's occurred over the past week since the roadblocks and rail blockades will likely be continuing through the beginning of the talks. So on the 20th of February, Chantal Belrichard published an article for the CBC for which she interviewed Brian Domney, a man who spent seven years negotiating with Suetin rights and title on behalf of the provincial crown. Domney says that during that time, both the provincial and federal governments had agreed at the office of the Wet'suwet'en, that group representing the hereditary chiefs, <coughs> had the authority to negotiate the rights and title of the Wet'suwet'en people at the treaty table. He argues that in order to shroud the coastal gas link pipeline in a veneer of legality, government and industry decided in this case to act instead for their own convenience, as though the elected band councils had full jurisdiction. Of the band councils, uh, Domney told the CBC, quote, When you are a First Nation politician responsible for taking care of your people, trapped on a reserve in abject poverty under the Indian Act after generations of oppression, and underfunded for statutory obligations by the federal government, when a corporation waves money under your nose, it's a big temptation. He didn't mention that some of these council members were told that the pipeline would be going through whether they signed agreements or not. Nonetheless, some pundits and politicians still want to argue that most Wet'suwet'en actually support the pipeline, without making any distinction between signing benefits agreements and giving supportive approval, even letting alone the issue of jurisdiction. On the same day, Ricochet published an article by Ethan Cox and Aaron Seater showing that the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission sent a report to the RCMP a year ago that their tactic of setting up broad public and media exclusion zones to carry out their raids on Wet'suwet'en had no legal justification. The RCMP ignored this report and used the same illegal tactic again this year. Also on the 20th, the BC RCMP declared that it would be withdrawing from Wet'suwet'en territory, but according to Unistoten, they in fact increased harassment, made illegal arrests, and increased surveillance and monitoring of Wet'suwet'en people and their invited guests. The next day, on the 21st, the BC Environmental Assessment Office declared that it could not yet accept Coastal GasLink's final environmental impact report, and that the company must take into consideration its pipeline's impacts on the Unistoten Healing Center, strongly encouraging, quote, open and constructive dialogue between Coastal GasLink, or CGL, and Dark House. Members of Dark House <coughs> are thus being asked to aid the company that just used the RCMP to remove them from their land. The decision, in any, in any case, could push construction back for months and gave the company 30 days to carry out these talks and produce a better report, but CGL said it would continue its pre-construction work in the meantime, which of course it has paused for now for the talks between hereditary chiefs and the federal government. Also on the 21st, Trudeau, probably emboldened by the BC RCMP announcement the day before that they would be withdrawing, ominously intoned that the rail blockades must now come down. This confused the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, who at the time were in the midst of what they said was an historic meeting with Mohawk leaders at the Tandanaga blockade in Ontario. Mohawk leaders had been saying for some days that as soon as RCMP and CGL uh, workers leave Wet'suwet'en territory, the rail blockades could come down and peaceful negotiations could take place. These were the same demands being made by Wet'suwet'en leaders, and those terms had not yet been met. 
And here was Trudeau acting as though Wet'suwet'en's stubbornness had ruined the government's honest negotiation attempts. Nevertheless, on the morning of, Feb of Monday, the 24th of February, probably influenced by the shift in tone from the Trudeau government, the Ontario Provincial Police moved in to dismantle the Mohawk rail blockade in Tyendinaga that, has been go that had been going on for almost three weeks, scuffling in the process with some of the land defenders and making several arrests. Ten of those arrested have now been charged. But it turned out to have been a predictably unwise decision, since by 8 p.m. that evening, new protests had sprung up all over the country in response, with solidarity protesters blocking a port in Vancouver, indigenous youth en masse taking over the steps of B.C. legislature again, another Gitsan rail blockade going up in New Hazleton, B.C., which led to 14 arrests that same night, a rail blockade going up in unceded Kwantlen territory in Maple Ridge, B.C., a rail blockade going up outside of Hamilton, Ontario, the shutting down of an international bridge in Sault Ste. Marie, indigenous youth taking an intersection in front of Parliament in Ottawa, and the blocking of Highway 6 in Caledonia Six Nations in Ontario. The next day, a large group amassed near Dundas and Jane Street in Toronto to block a rail corridor, uh, as new blockades and occupations seem to be springing up around the country as quickly as they're dismantled. Arrests, burning tires, traffic and rail disruptions, and mass civil disobedience have generally been flaring up everywhere this week in response to the police crackdown on the Tindanaga blockade, as the Canadian Federation of Agriculture is, uh, has said that uh, farmers are rationing propane and their sector is reaching a tipping point that could spell disaster for their industry. There was even a scene published by Real, Pe by Real People's Media which showed protesters standing on the tracks and then dodging an oncoming train at the last second. It appears now that all rail blockades west of Ontario have been shut down, but as of last night, they still remained near Caledonia, Montreal, Wemitachi, Listegouche, and Elsipoktog on the east coast. The Montreal blockade in Mohawk territory has been reinforced with concrete barriers and loads of rock uh, brought in with construction equipment. A young indigenous defender in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en said on the steps of the B.C. legislature this week, quote, What we are doing is demanding the bare minimum from Canada and standing against injustice, and doing so with love in our hearts, love for our land, and we should not face arrest for that. We are unarmed indigenous youth, and we are trying to facilitate a good-faith conversation between Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and the Canadian government, and the Canadian government has refused to engage in a good way and has instead employed paramilitary invasion and surveillance tactics. These are coercive measures. They are not conducive to consent. Indigenous consent cannot come uh, with a gun at the other end. Powerful. And uh, so obviously we just uh, discussed that, and we could be coming up to a music break, but wonder if either of you have any brief, brief thoughts on what has occurred this past week before we go do so. I always do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the one thing I would caution everyone about is the level of misinformation circulating right now. Mm. A lot of people are pushing narratives, especially this like age old narrative of um, like paid protesters mm. that governments have been circulating for over 150 years. Um, just fact check it. Like the mainstream media, as you said, is, is not doing a fantastic job. Look to your indie media, look to your local media. Um, and just check it yourself because it's insane out there. <laughs> what is that? I mean, I need to let me, I wasn't going to say anything, but let me take that one step further as I like to escalate always, um, which is there's active in financial incentive to lie. 
um, many of these companies are swim in the same ponds with the company. Like these, these folks are all friends for starters. Second of all, it's like there are a lot of investments in these things. The idea uh, media has not been isolated from the impact and investment from other industry for 40 years, maybe the fact that Bloomberg is running for president right now should t clue us off a little bit about that. So, I mean, I really hope that nobody under the age of 30 is is that unaware of reality as to think that things that get said on the news are facts, uh, just like without requiring any further assessment or thought. Um, but I, I'm really concerned about the, the generation older who, I mean, it's it's just a generation thing. It's not a criticism, but there, there was a time when it was entirely rational to just believe at more or less face value everything you saw in the news. But things have changed. Structures have changed. And these folks are, in some context, little more than extensions of the companies that pay for advertisements on their channels. So uh, ramped up. Consider that ramped up. <laughs> I would I would push back on that a little bit. I think um, not to like get too much into like the validity of mainstream media, but I have worked in it too. And I would say like pretty much like there are reporters who are working extremely hard to put out factual content and like are genuinely doing their best. And there's like a couple who are horrendous and putting out stories that seem to be just repeating company lines. And it is awful that this is happening. Um, that is the news company's fault. And people should absolutely be like reading up on the reporters and knowing their history when it comes to this. There's a few we could talk about afterwards, but... <laughs> It, it's hard because we need a news media, right? And we need it to be trustworthy. And uh, I am like unbelievably livid that people are undermining trust in media like this by publishing absolute trash. My debate about media for is for another week. All right, not sorry, not debate. I don't actually disagree with you, but that, boy, that's a whole <laughs> other topic. Uh, so, all right. So, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to right now. We're going to listen to uh, who did I have queued up? Oh, Crystal Shawanda. We're going to listen to uh, "You Can Let Go," and then we'll be back. And I believe we're going to hear from Lauren, if I'm not mistaken. We'll be back in about a minute and a half. You're listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. Mm, I would soon be your wife. And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our beloved Radio Syndicate partners or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I'm David Hostetter. We have Emma McIntosh in the studio, wonderfully, and we have uh, Saren Kaster on the ones and twos yet again. And uh, now we're going to talk about the Tech Resources Company. So uh, Vancouver company Tech Resources Limited uh, sent a letter to Federal Environment and Climate Change Minister Jonathan Wilkinson this past Sunday on the 23rd, by which Tech officially withdrew its application for regulatory approval of the massive open pit tar sands mine called Frontier that had been the center of a national debate over the future of the oil sands. This was fully expected to be approved by pessimistic environmentalists across the continent, and it would have pumped 260,000 barrels of oil sands bitumen per day into the 2060s, uh, becoming a major stain on Canada's already lackluster attempt to address climate change. And now it has been cancelled out of nowhere by the company that proposed it, just before the feds were set to provide their final decision. The mine would have been one of the biggest in the nation's history, and some indigenous opposition groups were already preparing to fight it with as much vigor as the Wet'suwet'en have mustered in their fight against coastal gas link. 
It's an interesting turn for the Trudeau government, which has been attempting to walk a tightrope between the political abysses of major climate action on the one hand and ongoing oil sands development on the other, which it tries and tries to keep assuring Alberta is of vital importance to Canada's future. Amongst questions about the adverse environmental impacts, there were also concerns about the mine's profitability, since oil prices are still much lower than the company said it would need them to be for the mine to make money. They nonetheless wrote in their letter that the uh, that they had, quote, continued to optimize the project to further confirm it was commercially viable. There are many already approved oil sands projects that have not yet been built, and there are many others that have uh, pulled out in recent years because of low oil prices. Tech Resources also wrote in this letter, quote, Global capital markets are changing rapidly and investors and cons- customers are con- increasingly uh, looking for jurisdictions to have a framework in place that reconciles resource development and climate change in order to produce the cleanest possible products. This does not yet exist here and today, and unfortunately, the growing debate around this issue has placed Frontier and our company squarely, squarely at the nexus of much broader issues that need to be resolved. In that context, it is now evident that there is no constructive path forward for the project. Questions about the societal implications of energy development, climate change, and indigenous rights are critically important ones for Canada, its provinces, and indigenous governments to work through. They also warned, quote, The promise of Canada's potential will not be realized until governments can reach agreement around how climate policy considerations will be addressed in the context of future responsibility uh, energy sector development responsible energy sector development. Without clarity on this critical question, the situation has faced frontier, uh, will be faced by future projects, and will be very difficult to attract future investment, either domestic or foreign. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who was earlier this year daring the Trudeau government to reject the mine, arguing that it was a matter of national unity and implying that Albertans were ready to secede over the issue, was miffed by the company's mention of climate change saying that in his many talks with tech representatives, they had not mentioned it even once. Kenny has, of course, partially blamed the federal government's handling of the Wet'suwet'en solidarity protests for tech's withdrawal. One supposes he would have liked to see a military-style crackdown on on indigenous dissent nationwide, in the manner of the Oka crisis in 1990 that had led to the deaths of several people. He also said that Trudeau's delay on the decision led tech to understand that it should uh, should save face by pulling out of its own accord. Indeed, the decision to cancel its own mine before the government could allows its land leases to preserve their market value. Kenny told reporters, quote, This should have been a straightforward and automatic approval. This decision was taken in large part because of regulatory uncertainty and endless delays created by the national government and the general atmosphere of lawlessness that we have seen taken hold of parts of our country and much of our economic infrastructure in the past three weeks. Kenny then said that he would be imposing stiff new penalties on anyone disrupting infrastructure and that Alberta would consider putting its own money into oil sands projects to reassure investors. So Emma, you uh, wrote an article also on this uh, this development recently. Yeah, I was supposed to be on a ski vacation. Oh. Um, I didn't even bring my laptop because we were expecting this decision later this week, mm. uh, not on Sunday night, but hey. News happens. It happens. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the really important thing here is probably, like, this whole thing has been so inflated as, like, an issue of identity and an issue of uh, unity and, like, an issue of the viability of the oil sands. And I I don't know that it is necessarily any one of those things. 
uh, except for the value that people have ascribed to it. But it is really difficult economic math to argue that a new oil sands mine is a, a thing that's going to make you a lot of money. I mean, tech has had to like already write down the value of um, another oil sands asset that it has. Um, it's just, I think that's probably the bigger factor here. <laughs> it's difficult to open a new mine, different as well than like having an existing mine. You can keep on sucking money out of that forever. But yeah, bigger questions. I think no one wants to have their particular development end up becoming like the flashpoint question in a debate <laughs> over like the survival of humanity. Like I, I can imagine wanting to dip out of that. I mm -hmm. can. I don't mm -hmm. know about you. Just really quickly, I think I find it interesting that Jason Kenney loves to talk about, um, you know, uh, delays, right? All these delays and all these, all these assessments and all these things. Never once has he ever said what those delays, like, what were the causes? Were they legitimate causes? Were they illegitimate causes? He doesn't want to go anywhere near that. He doesn't want to go anywhere near it because he, he's, that's not an argument he can win. He just, he's just trying to play into this narrative that, of course, we had to have this. This is just people, you know, it's eye-rolling. It's contemptuous eye-rolling. Mm -hmm. I think um, one thing that he also leaves out is the fact that, like, Tech's letter was pretty clear, as he mentioned, um, that, like, they want to see consistent climate policy. And people can kind of, there's enough in there that anyone on any side can read into <laughs> it how they want. Like, people um, who are really into climate action are saying, look, they're calling for climate action. Um, people who are really into just like having consistency on this are saying, look, they're calling for consistency. But like in, in some way, they're calling for people to do something. And it, it does make sense. I mean, businesses can't operate if they don't know what their mm -hmm. regulatory environment is going to be like in a year. But um, cough, cough, by the way. <laughs> 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 but um, yeah, like it just it's it's a silly it's a very silly kerfuffle, I think. Um, there's a whole ton of oil sands projects sitting there, mm. like expansions, new ones that have been approved and that haven't been built, and that's been the case for ages. And frankly, since, what, the 80s, people have been saying that any failure of a new oil sands project to make it to the development stage is like a, a governmental failure. I mean, come on. Mm. What about all the delays and millions of jobs and getting on with it? Like, it's, that's what, it's a, I, it do it as a joke, but it's so stupid. Literally everything that comes out of Jason Kenney's mouth could be just, you can just invert words and say it back to him and it has as much or more meaning. I actually did that earlier this week on my personal Twitter account where I took a really disgusting thing he said about protesters and I literally just word changed it and repeated it. Uh, and it, and it's exactly as convincing the other way around. That's how you know that someone's <laughs> argument is nonsense is if you can, if you can find and replace one conclusion with the other and it doesn't change the argument, that's how you know the argument is flawed. Mm. The, the struggle here is that it plays very, very well in Alberta. Um, some of you may know I lived there on and off a few times. Um, and like, love Alberta, but the there's a lot of, of difficult reconciling that is going on with the idea of what is coming mm. in terms of an energy transition. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is very safe to say that politicians who are not talking about what the transition looks like are doing their constituents a disservice. Um, and by extension, I have seen it argued that politicians who are focusing on opening new mines and promising people jobs in the short term, rather than doing that other important task of focusing on transition, are also doing them a disservice. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's the wrong discussion, I think some people would mm -hmm. say. 
Well, well and I'm sorry to keep cutting in, but I, uh, this particular thing is is so important to me, and the, and I've said it before, but the, like imagine for a second, I'm employed in Alberta, and the government, good reason or not, is talking about putting a serious clampdown on my sector. What do I want to hear? I want to hear that I'm going to be taken care of. I'm going to want to be here that there's some contingency plan for me, right? So there's two ways to look at it. One, we can look at it at Justin Trudeau as a climate skeptic and or as, a, as, as, as him as a climate skeptic and say, as a policy skeptic and say, this is how we know you don't actually mean it. But if I'm a, if I'm a right winger and I'm more predisposed to align with right wing politics, how do I look at that and not think he just doesn't care about me? He's actively trying to hurt me. This is just my side versus the, their side, right? How can you make the case that that isn't what's happening if you don't do anything? Like, come on, Justin, pick something. Well, it's difficult out there. I mean, he's uh, he's Justin Trudeau. You know, he's, he's trying to he's trying to walk his walk his path in the sunlight. Uh, so we're going to continue with this uh, talking about uh, the cost of oil sands projects uh, with the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline uh, purchased from Kinder Morgan by the Trudeau government for $4.5 billion in 2018. And it might now end up costing $12.6 billion to build, although that apparently includes uh, $1.1 billion already spent by, the, by Kinder Morgan. Uh, the government has vowed to sell the completed project and invest pro profits into fighting climate change. NDP Member of Parliament for Victoria, Laurel Collins, has called it an appalling use of public money, pointing out that the increased costs will make the project the largest single fossil fuel subsidy in, Canada his in Canadian history, and bringing out a poll that suggests that most Canadians don't want Canada to borrow $12.5 billion to keep the dream alive. She argued, quote, Trans Mountain is a sinking ship. Kinder Morgan saw the writing on the wall and they were able to walk away with billions of our taxpayer money. They walked away because they recognized that the, this project was going to become unprofitable. The parliamentary budget officer warned that with rising costs and delays, that this project would become uneconomical. Global News quotes Alexandra Woodsworth of Dogwood as saying, quote, If there is no profit to be made in the future, if we are going to have trouble finding buyers, we still have the opportunity to save these billions and invest in renewable energies, invest in the families struggling in Western Canada, rather than losing billions of dollars supporting a white elephant in the future. Prior to the revelation of the $12 billion cost, polls suggested most Canadians supported the bitumen pipeline, but now support has fallen and the country is split. This comes just after a couple of legal decisions have given greater support from the courts for the project. And so there you have it. The Trans Mountain expansion will now cost $12 billion. How are we all liking being a pipeline owner? Has anyone done the math on, on how many like centimeters of pipeline each Canadian owns or something? No, or have you? No, <laughs> I, I, I should. I, uh, Instead of that, just your weekly reminder that these projects are cost-benefit analysis with a process called amortization, which I'm, I'm mangling the word, but it's a real word. I look it up. What it means is cost over time. The only way, and they're telling you that these things are going to be profitable, it's because they're assuming that the math they're using assumes they will be in operation for their lifespan, something we factually know to be false. Good point. Um, now seems like also a good time to bring up this uh, very, very prominent conspiracy theory in Alberta that the federal government bought Trans Mountain to kill it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's like, man, like the, the number one thing... I find that it changes people's minds aside from like 
climate change being in their face and like giving them an asthma attack from wildfire smoke is money, which is unfortunate. But um, we've seen that, right? Like people are not supporting Trans Mountain as much as they were. And that's kind of happening in tandem with the costs going up. So I don't know. Um, Pretty predictable outcome, though, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, We are approaching the 1140 mark, but I think I may briefly mention this Jason Kenney war room thing. So uh, Kenny's, uh, Jason Kenny, the premier of Alberta's $30 million publicly funded war room against environmental dissent and those deemed un-Albertan because they oppose oil sands expansion is now going after the New York Times for reporting that BlackRock, the huge global investment firm, would no longer be investing in the oil sands. Kenny's war room, also known as the Canadian Energy Center, sent 23 tweets of vitriol against the New York Times calling the paper anti-Semitic and claiming that they've always disliked Alberta. The War Room's CEO, Tom Olson, then had many of the tweets deleted and apologized for the tone, but said that they would still be combating the inaccuracies of the New York Times article. The title of the Times piece was uh, Global Giants Swear Off Funding an Especially Dirty Fuel. So one can imagine that the War Room took exception to the idea that the oil sands are especially dirty, since they've been trying to rebrand the oil sands as clean for some time. And uh, we approach some music, but Emma, do you have any ideas briefly on this uh, continuing debacle of uh, Kenny's uh, war room? Um, I think it is hysterical. Uh, So far, the war room has managed to do exactly what CAP already does, the the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, except worse (laughs) um, and more frequently embarrassing. Um, So (laughs) I'm not really sure... (laughs) how Kenny's justifying that cost or like how long it's going to be until they give up the ghost on this one. Mm. Um, yeah, it's sad though. One of my old bosses works there and oh wow, they also frequently attack National Observer. So weird feelings. <laughs> and there it is. All right. We're going to thank you, Emma. We're going to come back with uh, Matthew Klippenstein, uh, clean tech, green energy expert. This is, uh, before we get to Matthew, who will be up in just a minute, we're going to listen to uh, Buffy St. Marie and Tanya Tagak both for about a minute, and we'll be right back here on The Green Majority. Uh, I'm going to be speaking now, I believe, uh, if I haven't uh, made a mistake here, because I'm trying to do three things at once. Matthew Klippenstein, are you on the phone? (laughs) I am indeed. Uh, very Howdy. quiet here. I'm sorry. Um, hang on. That may be me. Oh. Uh, are you there? I am here indeed. Uh, am I coming through okay now? Uh, yeah. We'll just uh, we'll see if we can get that signal a little stronger while we talk here. Uh, All right. Sure, sure. I'll also try and get a little bit closer to the, uh, the speaker on the phone here. Yeah, that's a little bit. If, if, you, can, if you can do it a, a hair more, that's even better. But uh, we're doing pretty good now. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, so uh, we're going to be uh, talking to you about an ebook. Uh, sorry, let me start at the beginning. I got off track there. Uh, Matthew Klippenstein sure. is an engineer and consultant who has been working for 20 years in clean tech uh, and has also been tracking the Canadian EV market for uh, over eight, I would say, and a, a contributor to the National Observer. Uh, also, our resident green majority uh, renewables and uh, specifically EV vehicle uh, consultant, I want to say. <laughs> consultant, well, we, sure. I think we'd have to pay you to call you that. Right, well, uh, that's okay. It, it's the thought that counts. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so 
Wilfred, primarily we want to talk to you today because you were uh, reviewing a, a, a book, a very interesting book That's by right. Mark Jackard, uh, The right. Citizen's Guide to Climate Success. Um, mm -hmm. And before I let you sort of take it away here with telling folks uh, what the book is about, why, why they might be interested, even just skimming your your review here, it really feels like at a high level, one of those things that isn't mentioned but is sort of implied is the large degree to which just folks' confusion about what they keep hearing everywhere and how that all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> So right. with there, that as the lead-in, uh, explain the there is a mountain, there is no mountain, there is a mountain thing. Sure, okay. So um, now uh, Mark Jacquard, uh, as a quick background, he's a SFU professor, Simon Fraser University professor. He's in the uh, Resource uh, Environmental Management uh, group over there. He's also contributed on several cycles to the IPCC. He continues to contribute um, to the uh, to the the uh, the modeling, rather the environmental economic modeling uh, work. And so, uh, reading the book made me think of that old Zen Cohen. I think it was in a Joni Mitchell song at one point. Um, First, there is a mountain. Then there is no mountain. Then there is. And the reason I thought of that is because, like many people, perhaps most people. Reading the book, I went into it thinking, okay, renewables and energy efficiency are the solution. You know, they're going to get us over over the goal line into the end zone, you know, get the puck in the net. Um, and so you start off that way, but then uh, Jacquard shows over his decades of experience, and that matters because it's not, it's not just that he's, you know, um, uh, how he's got some little cherry-picked data point, but he has decades of experience showing that they that they alone aren't the solution, right? You do need to have things like fuel switching, which is what uh, mandates for electric vehicles uh, require, or uh, a ban on new coal plants, for example, requires. And so, uh, so then you you arrive at the uh, the more informed enlightenment, I suppose, where you realize that the renewables and efficiency, which are often proclaimed, are indeed part of the solution, but they're not the entire solution. So, so there was no mountain, you know, they weren't the solution then there is, again, a mountain in the sense that uh, they are part of the solution, so you can recognize them in that way. And if uh, I, I'm probably if I can, doing... Oops, sorry. No, I was just going to say, if I can add to that, I think another distinction there, too, is that is that it's a, it's a dynamic where each individual part is in, is in itself insufficient. Um, so it's not just a, a problem with multiple solutions. It's a, it's a problem that requires a holistic solution, if I'm understanding correctly. That's right. So, like, if you, if we go back to the Zen, and I hope I'm not mangling the uh, the philosophy there, but the idea is that um, uh, first there is a mountain. You think, well, there's this fixed object called a mountain, at a one, and then you realize, well, it's just a collection of atoms, and in a few million or billion years, it'll be a large hill or a, eventually a plane or something, and then the the final point is that you you realize that yes, this is just a temporary, if long-lasting, arrangement of atoms, but you can conventionally call the mountain just for the simplicity of getting on with life. And uh, it, I guess it has to do with, like, fixed ideas of, of identity and self and so forth. Uh, but, uh, but yes, what, uh, what the Jacquard is saying is that um, we can't get too hung up on our enthusiasm for particular solutions. Um, we have to make sure that we're taking the holistic view and recognizing that as awesome as these are and as wonderful as renewables and efficiency are, um, we can't just pound the table. We can't get where we want to go just with them. They are part of a broader uh, strategy that uh, that we have to execute. 
And one of the ideas, Matthew, that was that was outlined in your review, I didn't I didn't read, you know, full disclosure, I haven't read the, the source material, but I did read your review. Right. And uh, w- one of the ideas there almost w- that was identified was the idea of, you know, I- solutions involve everyone, which is almost a cliche at this point. But right. what what is specifically meant in this in this context was that, you know, we can't I mean, I'm rephrasing it. I'm paraphrasing here in my own language. But essentially, it was mm-hmm. that, you know, we can't leave it to scientists, the climate scientists to do it. The problem is multidisciplinary, and you need to get multidisciplinary people involved in the activism, right? So, and one example, this is just me making up my own example now, um, but, and you can tell me if I'm on point with it or not, uh, mm-hmm. but the idea of, um, you know, if you want to, if you, you know, if, if you really need to do this, you need to, you can't just get a scientist to go and say, this will have health impacts. You need to get your doctor to be the one to say, hey, I don't know about that, you know, the 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 physics of this climate problem, but I can tell you all about the the horrendous diseases that these effects will, and essentially sticking to their wheelhouses, but that you create a tapestry of experts that without holes. Am, am I correctly interpreting it? That's a, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, I would say so. What uh, Jacquard says, and I'm actually paraphrasing him, of course, in my own review, but he's saying that uh, you know, just having scientists say, well, you know, this is a problem. We should do something about it. Uh, we really need to do something about it. It's urgent that we do something about it. It hasn't worked for decades. And so what he's suggesting is that if we take the, the views from political science, behavioral scientists, uh, behavioral science, psychology, uh, these other fields of, uh, that help us understand the motivations of human behavior, you know, how you, how you create political movements, for example, those are all necessary in order for us to uh, work towards solutions. I think with the climate strikes with um, Greta Thunberg, uh, who um, has catalyzed these. This is a, a great example of um, going beyond the actual physics, the at- actual atmospheric science, and creating the, uh, the political movement that allows these, that, that catalyzes these changes to happen. So yeah, it's, it's a matter of not staying in one's own expert silo, but reaching out to other fields of knowledge and seeing out how to, how to, how to use those uh, uh, to our benefit as well. Do, what part of uh, what part of this do you think is the 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 largest takeaway? Because I think, and what I mean by that is not like sort of what was your favorite part of it, but I mean there's there's a lot of uh, theory here in the sense of like outlining the uh, actual structures and explaining the difficulty and perhaps uh, shining some light on why the current you know what we've been trying so far hasn't been working. Was there was there an explicit like to do list at the end of this? Was there were there recommendations that like individuals can can actually act on, be it political or personal, or, or is this largely more just sort of an, uh, an explainer for really getting your head around the problem? Um, I'd say that uh, there are, there are mm, on both levels, I suppose. So it is, a, it is an explainer as to how we um, work towards solutions about this problem. Um, the, that's sort of the, the broader societal perspective. I think the most, indi- most individually relevant or poignant um, aspect of this was his idea that um, politic- that there's a, such a thing as political feasibility, right? Uh, many years ago, Australia implemented a carbon tax, then they had a conservative government come in and completely annihilate it. Um, so what, uh, one of the things that Jacquard um, you know, emphasizes for readers, which I think would be a very big takeaway, is um, you might have governments that are sincere about climate, you know, not necessarily endorsing any, any governments today or tomorrow, but you might have governments that want to do um, uh, significant effort on climate who have to give uh, concessions in order to 
prevent, um, you know, climate insincere governments from taking power. Uh, and so we actually had this situation, a, a very similar situation in B.C. not too long ago right now, you know, the carbon tax that has more than majority support in, in the province. It has had for a number of years. Uh, but um, it was it was rumored, uh, it was stated that uh, about four, four years ago or so when um, the ruling Liberal Party was looking to... Um, uh, to get reelected, they were behind the polls. One of the ideas they considered was scrapping the carbon tax because if you eliminate any tax, you can usually you know, rely on a little bit of a little bit of a bump in polling. And uh, so, the, one of the reasons they didn't do so uh, apparently uh, was that the tax was designed to be revenue neutral, and because they wanted to maintain their strong point on fiscal discipline, that became infeasible to do. If it was something that was invested in, like buses or other public transit, it would have been actually easier for them to um, to scrap the tax because then it would be, you know, it would it it would uh, it would basically leave more money in people's pockets, and a, and a smaller group would be affected by you know cutting funding to transit authorities. So um, this this question of uh, what concessions do, does a person think um, would be tolerable for a government to make? make big action on climate, you know, everywhere else in the file, I think is the most significant learning uh, from Jacquard's book. I think um, there, there was a really, there's one last really interesting takeaway. I, we also have a, there's something we could pivot to, which is highly relevant. We'll see how, how, well, how much you have to say about my first thing. Um, sure. There was so something that, I, that really stood out to me, and I, and I want to ask you about it. I don't know if you'll have an answer for me, but we'll ask you about it mm -hmm. anyway. Uh, something keen there uh, near the end of your uh, um, published article, uh, sure. there's there's a line where it's talking about the the, the he's rebutting uh, some some of Naomi Klein's ideas and uh, right. right and and essentially again I'm heavily taking liberties with my paraphrasing here, um, sure, but sure. essentially I mean essentially it sounds like he's just trying to it, from with the with the inclusion of my political bias in my assessment of what he's saying it sounds like yeah. he's trying desperately to fit a climate solution into capitalism um, um and that that so I, may be where some uh, of the struggle lies but that was sort of just my my viewing from from what was written here so can you please expand on right. that yeah <laughs> sure okay yeah so um so what he's what uh, what uh, jacquard is uh, one of the things he makes so one entire chapter in fact in the book is devoted to his you know rebuttal to the idea that you need to destroy capitalism to save the climate and I think what is what is useful to remember here is that there isn't one capitalism. There is there are actually many forms of capitalism uh, conducted in different countries. The one that happens to have uh, have been the most obnoxious and noticeable in the past you know, thirty years is the sort of Chicago uh, School of Economics or neoliberal uh, economic model. Um, what Jacquard points out is that uh, you have. Scandinavia seems to be something of a model for how Naomi Klein uh, thinks the world should be and who would disagree with the Scandinavian successes. Uh, and he says, well, that is also capitalist. And so um, I, I think one data point, which didn't make it into the review, uh, was that, you know, uh, I believe yesterday in the United States, the, the stock valuation of, um, of utility companies, energy uh, utility companies, exceeded the stock valuation of oil and gas companies for the first time in, like, forever. And so, uh, basically, if you, even when you think about the ruthless nature of capitalism, the clean energy capitalists have been running the table on oil and gas for a number of years, right? Since about 2014 or so, when the price of oil fell, it has been 
a tough slog, and it is a continually tougher slog every year for oil and gas companies who don't already have significant plans to decarbonize and diversify into renewables. So um, I guess my uh, the point I think that uh, Jacquard is trying to make is that um, there is probably a form of trade for self-benefit, capitalism in a broad, generic sense. Um, there would not be a need to try to completely upend that trade for self-benefit, which is the way he defines capitalism, even though he would probably agree that um, there are rather uh, pernicious forms of, of um, you know, burn-it-to-the-ground capitalism, which uh, pervade in some areas. Yeah. Uh, it, my economics teacher from first-year university would be pulling their hair out, but my translation of liberal neoliberal economics is basically just might makes right, um, and that that's, uh, I know, that's the only rule. That. Um, but that's so, okay, right. so I, I actually, I think this is really interesting, so we'll save the other thing for another week. Let me ask you about this one thing. Sure. So one of the yeah. things that I find about my advocacy here on the program is that um, mm -hmm. I, you know, we deal with a lot of folks from a, from a wide range of, you know, political thought, uh, they, they probably use similar labels for themselves, but there's a lot of diversity in that thought. And there is yeah. a lot of that. There's a very, um, I think, a strong trend, a very like, you know, capitalism is caused to this problem. And I think stand out to some degree to the idea that I my perspective is is nuanced and it sounds different, but isn't really that different. And I'm wondering if you think with your final minute here, if you think that's maybe what's going on here as well, which is that when I criticize capitalism, I'm what I'm saying is I'm I'm coming at it from the perspective of I'm I believe correctly identifying what we have now as just socialism for the rich, right? They love to socialize the costs oh, yeah, and privatize absolutely. the gains. So we don't actually have <laughs> capitalism. Capitalism in theory, all of these ideas that we have, hard work gets you ahead in life, all those things that are obviously lies, if they were right. true, and here's me running for office now, if we made them true <laughs> by law, like if we just said, okay, that you know that thing, that rule, that, that thing we all believe is true, how about we just make it so that that can't, that has to be true? Uh, and then we'll just see what happens. But I think that's really I, yeah. w what's happening here. I think they're really in agreement, but they're just disagreeing about which version of, of capitalism they're using in which context. Uh, you have right. 30 I, seconds to respond. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, so I think uh, between the two of us, and I suspect um, uh, Naomi Klein, if we, if we burrow deeply into the position, uh, ultimately critiques of capitalism as we know it, tend to be critiques of, uh, you know, hideously abusive uh, power of elites, of people who are very wealthy, who can do whatever they want because they have the means to do so. Uh, I, would, I would suspect that Klein, yourself, myself, uh, even Jacquard, perhaps, uh, would be more amenable to uh, any sort of capitalist-type system which prevents the growth in such abuse of power because anyone with an extraordinary amount of power will abuse it, it just so happens that the climate has been the victim, well, and other you know working people and so forth have been the victims uh, in our most recent uh, era. Well, you can look forward to me running for office in four years under the platform Capitalism for Humans. Uh, don't think <laughs> I'm joking, Matthew. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Well, it's always a pleasure to be a, to be on. <laughs> All right, so we're we're going to link to Matthew's article in the National Observer on today's show post, along with the rest of the content. Uh, we don't have time for David to say goodbye, but <laughs> everyone in the studio says goodbye, and uh, and we'll have a have a good green week, folks, and we'll talk to you real soon.